You'll find the reading today is on page 10 of the Bibles in front of you. Page 10, it's Genesis chapter 8, starting at verse 20 and reading through to 9, verse 17. Genesis 8, verse 20. Then Noah built an altar to the Lord, and taking some of all the clean animals and clean birds, he sacrificed burnt offerings on it. The Lord smelled the pleasing aroma and said in his heart, Never again will I curse the ground because of man, even though every inclination of his heart is evil from childhood, and never again will I destroy all living creatures as I have done. As long as the earth endures, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night, will never cease. Then God blessed Noah and his sons, saying to them, Be fruitful and increase in number and fill the earth. The fear and the dread of you will fall upon all the beasts of the earth and all the birds of the air, upon every creature that moves along the ground and upon all the fish of the sea. They are given into your hands. Everything that lives and moves will be food for you. Just as I gave you the green plants, I now give you everything. But you must not eat meat that has its lifeblood still in it. And for your lifeblood, I will surely demand an accounting. I will demand an accounting from every animal. And from each man too, I will demand an accounting for the life of his fellow man. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. For in the image of God has God made man. As for you, be fruitful and increase in number. Multiply on the earth and increase upon it. Then God said to Noah and to his sons with him, I now establish my covenant with you and with your descendants after you. And with every living creature that was with you, the birds, the livestock, and all the wild animals, all those that came out of the ark with you, every living creature on earth, I establish my covenant with you. Never again will all life be cut off by the waters of a flood. Never again will there be a flood to destroy the earth. And God said, this is the sign of the covenant I am making between me and you and every living creature with you, a covenant for all generations to come. I have set my rainbow in the clouds, and it will be the sign of the covenant between me and the earth. Whenever I bring clouds over the earth and the rainbow appears in the clouds, I will remember my covenant between me and you and all living creatures of every kind. Never again will the waters become a flood to destroy all life. Whenever the rainbow appears in the clouds, I will see it and remember the everlasting covenant between God and all living creatures of every kind on the earth. So God said to Noah, This is the sign of the covenant I have established between me and all life on the earth. We have a speaking God, and this is his word. Uh, 
as we look once again at Noah and the flood. Um, but this time, it's its significance. Last week, through the aid of a, a cartoon, uh, we covered what happened in regard to Noah and the flood. And this week, we're looking at its significance, what it is that God is communicating, well, was communicating to them and is communicating to us. Unfortunately, we don't have to guess that. We don't have an event which happened and we're just left puzzled as to what it means. No, we have the divine narrative um, given down the ages, recorded by Moses long after the event. So first, a little brief recap on what we discovered last week. First of all, it was that there was most likely a localized flood rather than a universal flood. Secondly, that it took place somewhere in ancient Mesopotamia, which is roughly between northeastern Turkey and southeastern Iraq today. We also discovered that a flood of exceptionally catastrophic proportions is well established in the literary histories of the other nations of the ancient Near East around 3,000 years B.C., and subsequently over those other millennia, um, different civilizations, different empires, uh, recorded these, amended them even. The Sumerian, the Babylonian, the Assyrian, the Hurrian, and the Hittite. And multiple copies of their accounts of this kind of catastrophic flood in their long distant past memory um, was recorded in cuneiform script as they chiseled on clay tablets, which were then baked, and they survive in various languages that those people spoke. Like the Genesis account, there were some similarities, fairly basic ones, a flood, a boat, and some people survived. But if you read them, you would notice that they were very different, especially in the character of the God of Genesis compared with the character of the gods of the ancient Near Eastern accounts. After the flood waters receded, there was a new beginning, a restoration, and there are certain clear parallels with the original creation back in Genesis 1. So in Genesis 8 verse 1, we have God making the wind blow over the earth to evaporate the water, which echoes Genesis 1 verse 2, where the Spirit of God hovered or brooded or moved over the face of the waters. In Hebrew, as you probably know, that uh, the word for spirit and the word for wind is the same. So the Spirit of God is God's life-giving power, and the wind of, is, the, is the first step in the recreation of life. It's interesting in the Genesis account that there is no mention of the sun. No mention of the sun in the whole process of evaporation. Whereas in the ancient Near Eastern accounts, the sun, a god to them, played a major role in subsiding the waters. Now, why is that? Well, 
the wind of God and the Spirit of God, God himself, he is responsible for the restoration of life and for the salvation of man. Genesis 8.1 is a slap in the face to the ancient Near Eastern pagan polytheism. A second parallel is the language of the post-flood account reflecting the new beginning. So in 8.13, we have on the first day of the first month of Noah's 601st year that the water dried up from the earth. One ancient commentator has written, precisely at the commencement of the year, on the anniversary of creation, the world resumed again the form that God had given it when it first came into being. A third parallel is given in uh, um, the uh, divine mandate where it had said in Genesis 1, 22 and 28 that human beings were to multiply and on the other hand they were to manage God's earth. And that's repeated to Noah in 8.17 and 9.1. Well, so let's make a start. What caused the flood? Well, anthropologically, human beings being sinful rebelled against God. Chapter 6 of Genesis, verse 5. The Lord saw how great man's wickedness on earth had become, and every inclination of the thoughts of his heart's heart was only evil all the time. So man sinned. Theologically, God decided that it was time to judge and punish human beings for their wickedness and their evil inclinations. 6, 6 and 7. The Lord was grieved that he had made man on the earth and his heart was filled with pain. So the Lord said, I will wipe mankind whom I have created from the face of the earth, men and animals and creatures that move along the ground and the birds of the air, for I am grieved that I have made them. So time for judgment from a just God. And then hydrologically, if you like, it rained and the water also bubbled up from underneath so maybe the sea levels rose in order to create that 711 all the springs of the great deep burst forth and the floodgates of heaven were opened 717 for 40 days the flood kept covering um, kept coming on the earth and as the waters increased they lifted the ark above the earth and what did the flood result in? The answer is a new covenant or agreement. Before the flood, God had made a covenant with Noah. He'd made an agreement with him that he would not destroy Noah. Now after the flood, he makes an agreement that the world would not be destroyed. Now covenants are important things in the Bible. And there are a number of them. And they get progressively more specific and fortunately progressively richer in what they promised. This one to Noah is for everyone, for all human beings. 
There are ones with Abraham and uh, with Moses, which were for the nation, the people of Israel. There's one with David, which was for a Messiah to arise from his uh, future lineage, which was very specific to a, for a person. And then there is the greatest one, which came through Jesus Christ, which was a promise for a new birth, for a new start, for all who would accept him. So let's have a look at this particular covenant and see what the benefits are that we're enjoying as a result of it. And then maybe every time we see a rainbow from now on, we will know what we're thankful to God for. So let's uh, try and understand it. First of all, the author of it. That's the first thing to notice, is that um, something about the nature of this particular covenant. There were covenants in, in normal everyday life in the ancient world. They had an agreement between uh, two parties, and those parties were on an equal footing. They had parity, in other words. And those two parties could negotiate the terms. When they met, they would doubtless haggle over those terms. If they didn't like them, they could kind of posture, they could bargain, they could renegotiate. Well, although a covenant is borrowed from human interaction, the covenant between God and man is not like that at all. Yes, there are two parties, but they're certainly not equal parties. And there are no negotiations. God sets out what he's going to do. It is non-negotiable. There's no haggling with God. I'm sure that sometimes we'd all like to, having become Christians, to renegotiate the package, if you like. Renegotiate the deal. We sort of say, well, Lord, thank you. Um, now, I really find this particular sort of thing difficult. Um, but if I do a little bit extra in this area... Um, can I kind of forget about that one and you'll just kind of let me off? It doesn't work like that. You know, he presents the deal, we accept it or reject it. No haggling, no renegotiation, no kind of wriggle room on certain kind of fundamentals. Although plenty in terms of discerning God's purpose for our life, I mean, so specifically how we, uh, we function for him, in his world. So there's a kind of bargaining which is not acceptable in terms of establishing an agreement, a covenant with God. Now this particular covenant is totally unconditional. The benefits of other covenants are not they are conditional upon a response from us, but we don't have to respond at all to this one. It is completely unconditional. God, it seems, gives them two promises that um, God will never again destroy the earth. That's an example of what's called common grace. And he pours that out on everyone irrespective of whether they show any interest in him at all. A second preliminary question is really, why should God in any way be favorably disposed towards Noah and to mankind who 
in their brief history have been so wicked and rebellious? Why should he show kindness? Is it possibly because Noah was particularly good? You know, is there a possibility of earning God's favor? Well, it doesn't seem so, does it? In 8.21, we read that every inclination of his heart is evil from childhood. God is saying of man that sin is not only inherited by birth, but that it's right at the heart of human beings. So man doesn't, and we don't deserve God's favor. The question is then, how has he come to give it? And I think the answer lies in the very first thing that Noah does once he came out of the ark. Did you notice what he did in verse 20? He built an altar and he made a sacrifice. From his limited stock, very precious to him, he took one of each of the ritually clean animals and Instead of using them himself, he made a free will offering of them to God. So as soon as his feet touch dry land, his thought is of God. Now, sacrifice in the Old Testament is of two kinds. There are sin offerings, which in the, the, the word uh, hints at is to remove sin. And there are thanks offerings which express gratitude to God. And Noah's sacrifice involved both. He was thankful to God because he'd been saved from the flood in which so many had been killed, but his life and those of his closest family spared. If you've ever been rescued, you'll know something of what I mean. I, I nearly was once. Um, I was, uh, as a sort of teenager, I used to go off sailing, and particularly when um, all the other boats were coming in, my friends and I would go out. And we went out one day in the Thames Estuary as the kind of winds got up, and this is in a, a catamaran, and as the waves get up, and you can imagine the waves come up and the catamaran torpedoes into the waves, you flip over. If you're not kind of attached to a trapeze, off you go, and off I went. But they stayed on board, and they managed to sort of write it and sail on. At that particular time, the yellow air sea rescue helicopter from Manston was above, and it was looking down and going round and round in circles. Now, they were keeping an eye on me. They were waiting to see whether my two friends were able to kind of get the boat to come round and to pick me up. Otherwise, I'd have been very grateful to that helicopter because they would have come and winch me out of the water, and I would have been indebted to them, doubtless, for the rest of my life, because otherwise I'd have just drifted off and landed somewhere in the North Sea and died of hypothermia, no doubt. So one can be, at times, very grateful to others who rescue us. And Noah, quite understandably, is incredibly grateful to God the rescue that God has performed on him. He knows he doesn't deserve it. He knows he's no better than others and his subsequent life reveals that. So um, 
But there's another aspect to it, and that is the aspect of the sacrifice pleasing God. God knew he was no better than other men. He knows God by rights should have actually destroyed him and his family as well. So in addition to this sacrifice of praise and thanksgiving, he sacrifices the lives of some animals, clean animals. They are substitute lives for his life. Instead of man's blood being shed, the animal's blood is shed. A poor substitute, maybe, but the whole Old Testament sacrificial business prepares God's people to understand that the only really adequate sacrifice for mankind was the life of a perfect man, the man we know of who came thousands of years later, Jesus Christ. So sacrifice, the life of another, is the basis of God's agreement with Noah. Noah knew he should have died. He knows he can only live if uh, something else dies. God then has favor on him and provides that substitute. Sacrifice always reminds me of a, a story I once read of um, a little Scottish lad at the end of the last century. It was the school holidays, and Alan had been helping his dad look after the, the, the flock. One day, when his day was over in the hills, he was about to set off back home, and there was an incredible deluge, a great thunderstorm, so rather than get soaking wet, he took refuge in nearby caves. And uh, tired, the inevitable happened. He fell asleep, and he woke up early the next morning when the rain had stopped. But as he went outside, he noticed that the railway bridge over the river had collapsed. What's more, he knew that the early morning train would soon be coming up the incline, and that not and then so the driver would not be in a position to be able to see what had happened to the bridge until the very last minute, by which time it would be too late and the train would just go off the rails and into the river, causing a terrible loss of life. So Alan ran to the track, and as the train approached, he waved furiously to try and attract the attention of the driver. But the driver doubtless thought that the lad was just kind of larking around. In desperation, Alan thought that there was only one way to stop him, and that would be to stand in the track itself. Well, it worked. The driver braked, but it was too late. He hit the lad, and the lad died. Reaching the driver, realizing what had happened. He then gets out the cab and he picks up the little lad's body and he said, he gave his life that we might live. He said to the other passengers, he gave his life that we might live. It takes similarly the life of another in order that God might be able to save us and let us live. Now, what are the promises of the covenant with Noah? Well, two are mentioned, um, and they're mentioned twice, uh, in fact. In 8.21, the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma and said in his heart, never again will I curse the ground because of man, even though every inclination of his heart is evil from childhood. 
and never again will I destroy all living creatures as I have done. And in 9-11, I establish my covenant with you. Never again will all life be cut off by the waters of a flood. Never again will, be the, will there be a flood to destroy the earth. Now that may have something to say to us in our generation. If you're my age, you might just have remembered the Cuban Missile Crisis when we got very close to having an intercontinental ballistic war with the Soviet Union, the Americans and them. You might even remember in 1962, I only know this from history, that um, a B-52 bomber with a nuclear bomb on flew over Spain and accidentally dropped it and six out of the seven safety devices failed. It's just one away from a massive, massive explosion. And today, you know, there is plenty of strife in the world, but it doesn't take much imagination to realize how situations like in Syria, with the increase of Soviet forces, with the Soviet Air Force flying around bombing one lot, the American Air Force flying around bombing another lot, and one other lot not getting too bombed, that uh, somebody could have a very nasty accident and the whole thing could kind of escalate considerably. And we may from time to time be fearful about the future of the earth. But is there not a promise here? God says he won't allow the world to be destroyed again. So maybe, and I stress maybe, maybe God might just decide to intervene and make it the end of the world at the same time as man was just about to destroy it. Now that's not to be complacent. We should, of course, encourage all sides to engage in negotiations that would reduce the amount of nuclear weapons in the world. But maybe this promise, this promise from an earlier catastrophe, that God would not allow the world to be destroyed again by such a cataclysmic end. The other promise is seasonal stability. God's going to put an end to the meteorological chaos. He's going to keep the seasons, 8.22. As long as the earth endures, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night will never cease. I think we so easily forget how delicately balanced the climatic conditions of our planet are. If our little globe just tilted from whatever its particular axis degree, I think it's 23, but um, whatever sort of inclination it is towards the sun, if it tilted a different way, well, that's, that's it. The seasons all go. You know, just kind of alter the orbit very slightly by a few miles. And depending on which way the miles are, you either fry or you freeze. But it's incredibly delicately balanced. We take it all for granted, but it is an amazing thing. And finally, there was the sign of the covenant, the rainbow. 
Whether there'd always been a rainbow and it now took on new significance, or whether a rainbow was a phenomenon which occurred after the flood, who knows? But it is given a significance here. In Hebrew, the word for rainbow is the same word as bow. It's a hunting bow. So you can probably picture it, particularly if you're familiar with some of the kind of Old Testament poetry from the Psalms where lightning strikes are arrows from God's bow. So you can see what's happening, can't you? You know, God is hanging up his hunting bow. Like in those sort of Scottish cabins, you know, they, uh, the lairds put their rifles up over the, uh, the mantelpiece of the fire. They're not using it. And God is not using his hunting bow to judge men. That's the significance of it. God, when he sees the rainbow, he will remember that he is not going to destroy the earth by flood again. And what's more, we will be able to remember that God will remember that he is not going to destroy the earth again. That's a simple reminder that God is ultimately in charge of this whole world. In the book of Revelation, authored by the Apostle John, he uh, has a vision of heaven. He pictures God on the throne and he pictures a rainbow the signs of both God's judgment and God's mercy are there commemorated. So when we see a rainbow, particularly a rainbow, I think, against a dark sky, we are meant to remember this passage and four things. That there is a creator, that he will never destroy the world again, that he holds everything together weather-wise so that we can go on living and enjoy the seasons of the year with their predictability. Secondly, we remember also that he can accept us even though we're sinful because of the sacrifice of another in our place. And thirdly, that we should all do, we should all make sure that we have moved from under the dark sky of judgment to place ourselves under the mercy of the rainbow. And then lastly, then we will know not just the universal blessings of the covenant with Noah, but the spiritual blessings of the new life, the eternal life through the covenant which came through Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Perhaps you'd like to open the uh, inside of our song sheet this morning, and you'll find in the bottom right-hand corner a prayer called the General Thanksgiving. And given that uh, this is an, an unconditional covenant, this particular prayer reminds us of that, but also reminds us of the conditional covenant that we enjoy through Jesus Christ if we access it on God's terms.
we pray together. Almighty God, Father of all mercies, we, your unworthy servants, give you most humble and hearty thanks for all your goodness and loving kindness. We bless you for our creation, preservation, and all the blessings of this life, but above all for your immeasurable love in the redemption of the world by our Lord Jesus Christ, for the means of grace and for the hope of glory. And give us, we pray, such a sense of all your mercies that our hearts may be unfeignedly thankful and that we show forth your praise not only with our lips but in our lives by giving up ourselves to your service and by walking before you in holiness and righteousness all our days through Jesus Christ our Lord to whom with you and the Holy Spirit be all honour and glory forever and ever. Amen.